Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. Our cases this week, a treasured and much loved family dog is killed and then torn limb by limb by a disgruntled neighbor. The black lab named Bear inadvertently wandered onto a neighbor's property, and the neighbor was angry. Police found the dog in pieces, the head chopped off, everything in a box hidden in that neighbor's barn. Now the killer, who pleaded guilty to a felony count of killing and torturing of an animal, will serve a mere 60 days behind bars. Even the judge said to the family and the community that packed the courtroom for this one that the killer was given the maximum penalty under the law, but the judge said, it's not enough. So what is justice when the maximum penalty doesn't feel like it's enough? But first, you know when the pretty college cheerleader marries the gorgeous football player, life is supposed to be perfect. That is, until it's not. Boy, has this fairy tale gone off the rails. A former pageant queen is accused of trying to have her husband killed. The reason for the murder for hire plot, say police? The wife was having an affair. The wife was having the affair. And the husband found out and wanted a divorce. She didn't like that. They were in a custody battle. So rather than just saying, hey, I'm sorry, let's go to counseling, police say she opted to have him killed while on vacation in the Bahamas. We are recording this on Wednesday, August 2nd of 2023. We have a new guest today, everyone, Rachel Fizet, a criminal defense attorney who specializes in white-collar crimes and other complex litigation here in Los Angeles. I met Rachel while emceeing a luncheon packed with attorneys, and I said, hey, who wants to be on my podcast? And Rachel said, okay, me. So here's Rachel. (laughs) Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, we're thrilled to have you. Welcome, welcome. Um, You know, we do have some standards here at the podcast. Rachel really is an attorney. She has been vetted. (laughs) Just just not someone I met at a luncheon. But uh, that's how I I love meeting people. So you also do a lot of commentary for local news organizations here in Los Angeles. So we're excited to have you on the podcast. Yeah, I'm excited. And our topics are really interesting today. Yeah, they they always... tend to be. And, you know, the thing that always surprises me is human nature. The things that people will do, the lengths they will go to, to solve what is a problem, as I always say, murder is not the solution to a problem. Yet people do seem to think that that's their clear way out. I don't get it. I don't get it. And people will never change, will they, Rachel? People don't want to change. And I think uh, as far as Lindsay Shiver goes, it looks like that divorce proceeding might have been really messy and perhaps she was thinking that she did not want to go through it. So, and apparently the neighbor did not want to return his uh, neighbor's dog. So I'm not sure where these answers are lying, but um, it's always interesting to take a deep dive into the human psyche. Ah, yes. So our first case is out of the Bahamas, and it involves a family from Thomasville, Georgia. We'll explain why there are so many jurisdictions here. So police say that a former beauty queen and her lover were allegedly plotting to kill her husband, who is a former football player. So the motive, say police, is that the husband found out that she was having an affair and that he wanted a divorce. And for some reason, she and her lover didn't want that. And I I think the real reason here is this contentious divorce, because when we get a little deeper into what was going on in the divorce, he wanted everything and he wanted the kids and she wanted support and she wanted the kids and and he he has the jet and she can't have it. So it's it's a it's it's very typical of a divorce, except they have a lot of assets. So they're rich and they have this incredible lifestyle, uh, which adds to the in intrigue here. 
don't you always find, Rachel, that at the center, at the core of all of these crime cases is honestly a rather simple dispute, meaning someone is wronged, someone is hurt, a secret is about to be revealed. And and always I, I go again to this whole like problem solving thing. And this is the best way you could come up to deal with your problem. <laughs> It's so interesting because motive is not necessary to prove a crime. So the prosecutor does not need to get to motive. But unless you have a motive and the prosecutor can show the motive, it becomes very difficult for a jury to relate to the crime. And that's exactly what you're saying here is these simple motivations that we can all in some way relate to. Obviously, we can't all relate to the alleged solutions, but the way we can relate to solving a, a a problem or a big problem or just the love of your children, the custody of your children, uh, the, the anger at a spouse, those are things that people can at some level relate to, which shows the motive. And then often the crime can be back ended into. So let's look at the cast of characters here, because that will help us to understand who is accused of what and who who is allegedly playing which role. So 36-year-old Lindsay Shiver is accused of planning to kill her husband of 16 years, Robert Shiver, who is 38. Police say that Lindsay was having an affair with a 28-year-old man named Terrence Bethel, who lives in the Bahamas. The couple has a home in Georgia, and then they have a vacation home in the Bahamas. Okay, people with a lot of money here. The alleged murder plot was uncovered in real time by the police in the Bahamas investigating what seemed to be a totally unrelated crime. They were investigating a break-in at a local bar and grill. That's what they were looking into. And so the police say while they're investigating that and asking for employees' cell phones and contacts and research history, you know, what? all these things are doing like the digital forensics to figure out What's going on here? What Did anybody know anybody? Okay, as they're going through that, all of a sudden police say, hey, wait a minute, what the heck is this murder for hire plot that, that we found on WhatsApp? So the connection to all of this is one of the bartenders. The bartender in, in that case is Terrence Bethel. Okay, who's he? He's the alleged lover of the wife in this case. So that's how the plot was uncovered. How crazy is that? It so often happens that one crime leads to another. I mean, this is wild because now this has become such a high profile and strange uh, conspiracy that was taking place in the Bahamas. So they're investigating I agree. What seems unrelated, we think it's unrelated. Um, we haven't been able to see the content of those messages yet. There could be some relation, but you're right. The bartender is is the alleged boyfriend and part of what we now understand to be a murder plot, a conspiracy to commit murder of Lindsay's husband right there in the Bahamas. <laughs> it's It really is extraordinary. And when you think about it, that... Look, these are just allegations. We have no idea if they are founded. They are, I presume, in the Bahamas, which is based on, a, a, you know, British law that you are innocent until proven guilty. So, again, if if this plot is true, as the authorities say that it is, wow, someone literally just dodged a bullet. And the authorities acted with a lot of speed. Uh, from what we can tell in in apprehending the suspects. So I believe they are going to have credible evidence um, that it was imminent, that the murder was imminent, and that they saved this man's life. How scary is that? And boy, that is not going to help in the divorce, let me tell you. <laughs> the family it court judge. custody battle. <laughs> no, it does not help you at all, especially when you're sitting behind bars as she is, along with some of her best friends here in the Bahamas. So also arrested in this whole thing is um, a third person. And this is the alleged hitman, and t- uh, according to police, 29-year-old Ferran Newbold Jr. Okay, so that's so there are three of them sitting in a jail in the Bahamas right now, all charged with this case. 
So now I want to talk about the marriage and the relationship. So then we can put into context maybe what spurred this crazy plot and why. Okay, because I, I don't know how else to understand this insanity. Because if we look at this family, we look at this couple, they have everything. They have status, money, good looks, beautiful children. I mean, really, they have a house in the Bahamas. What more do they want? <laughs> I, I don't know what else to ask, you know. They're, so they're living that seemingly perfect life. Okay, I want to start with the fairy tale part of all this. You know, fairy tales gone bad. It's going to be a new podcast I'm going to do. It's a good one. <laughs> so Lindsay and Robert both attended Auburn University somewhere between 2005 and 2008 because they were, you know, um, about two years apart. So uh, I'm trying to get the overlap years here for you. So she was a cheerleader. She was Miss Houston County, and she came in second in the National Peanut Festival pageant. OK, big deal in Georgia. Grow a lot of peanuts. Really not trying to make fun here because that really is a big deal. Peanuts, big industry, big fare, all of that. OK, he was a football player and then he had a really brief career with the Atlanta Falcons. So he played for Auburn University, which is a really big deal. And then he turned pro. So Robert Shiver, who is the son of Alan Shiver, he is a retired CEO for the company called Flower Foods. And they reportedly are a billion dollar baking company. So not only... Do you have talent and athleticism and beauty? But also, clearly, Robert came from a boatload of money himself. So, again, the whole package, everyone, this marriage, brilliant, they have great kids, they're beautiful, everything is perfect. So, according to the company profile, Robert went on to become an executive vice president for senior life insurance. Robert and Lindsay had three children. They, again, lived an incredibly wealthy lifestyle. In Thomasville, Georgia, their home alone is worth $2.5 million. Again, people with means. So apparently, when Robert learned that his wife was cheating on him, he filed for divorce. And it's in these divorce documents that we get a little insight to what's going on between the couple and what they're fighting over. Okay, Robert wanted sole custody of the three children, along with sole use of that Thomasville, Georgia mansion. He also asked the court to deny any claims for alimony or any money that Lindsay might be asking for. And he said, Lindsay's perfectly capable of taking care of herself. But Rachel, Lindsay says something completely different here, right? Lindsay wants half. She wants half. I've been in this marriage and I want half. And I think the Georgia laws are less settled than, say, the laws in California as to what one gets upon divorce. So they are about to engage in a real battle over the money and the children. And there are plenty of hurt feelings here. I believe he listed adulterous conduct in his filing. And you have you have a real battle brewing in the family court there. And that's allegedly what spurred all of this on and what you have prior to that which Anna you're right you have all of this beauty and outward looking perfection I think you have oodles of social media posts that your friends would be jealous of your uh, magnificent beautiful and wealthy lifestyle but what was happening at home um, as outlaid in the divorce papers and what <laughs> what's now ongoing um, appears to tell just a totally different picture. Yeah, it's amazing because when you look at the court documents in Lindsay's response, which she filed the very next day, so Lindsay and her attorneys were right on it. She said in her filings that she had, quote, incurred debt beyond her means to pay and that she was asking Robert, her husband, to pay the bills. Lindsay also wanted sole custody of the children, along with ownership of their home, the one in Thomasville. And then she also requested a restraining order. So she says she wants alimony and that she wants an even division of their assets, including bank and retirement accounts, along with the family's vehicles, boat, jet, businesses, and other financial holdings. 
So there's a lot of money at stake here. Okay, I want to talk about this one part, which has not been completely flushed out in public records yet. So we're just dealing with the allegations here. Lindsay, in these filings, says that Robert was abusive in their relationship, accusing her estranged husband of domestic violence, as well as physical and mental cruel treatment. That she feels unsafe in the marital home and that she installed locks and interior doors in the home for protection. Um, That the abuse happened in front of the children. Here's my question for you. We always take domestic violence extremely seriously here on the program. My question to you is, how important will it be, because we don't know, if there are any records or police records of her calling for assistance, filing for previous restraining orders, et cetera, which we don't have right now. We That doesn't mean they don't exist. We just well, don't seem to have access to it right now, if they exist. The importance to the family matter is is one thing, and the importance to the criminal conduct is is another, perhaps. So that's um, that's where that stuff will come in um, as to her criminal conduct. The thing about it is that in order to use any kind of self defense or any kind of defense mitigating her crime as it relates to the domestic violence. The, the crime would have to look generally less planned. And right. so the planning of the murder of someone who you have alleged as abused, you or she has alleged is an abuser, um, it basically takes that portion out of the mitigating circumstances. Because if you're in the heat of a battle or you're fearing for your life at that moment, that all can come in into some sort of defense, a complete defense, if it's self-defense in that moment, or some sort of mitigating circumstance as it relates to a seriously abusive situation. I think she may try to bring this evidence in and there may be some favor that it garners her for a jury if this, if these crimes go to a jury in the Bahamas. However, under the law, it's unlikely to get her anywhere as it relates to a mitigating factor in a conspiracy to commit murder. And in the family court, Georgia laws may or may not consider that type of evidence when doing a straight asset distribution, but it definitely comes in as it relates to custody. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting because You know, we've had so many cases that we've covered where there was some very serious domestic violence. And sadly, often the way it ends is that the abuser is the one who ends up killing the victim in the end, oftentimes when he or she is trying to flee the situation. Um, That's always seems to be the most dangerous time. And then when you have the victim defending themselves in a situation, we've seen courts Um, that have had some sympathy for the victims in uh, defending themselves against their attacker. But as Uh you said, the problem with this one is this isn't a real-time defense of herself or her children. It's, I'm in the Bahamas, and I'm planning this. When you think if you have, and if you are fearing for your safety, is this the most logical way to guarantee your safety? Right, and that's the issue, is... You could call the police if you're away. If you are not um, in imminent danger, and she's far enough away from the situation that she can plan an entire plot, she could certainly also attempt to get the police involved, have make record, um, a- and make a case against him. She is not in the imminent harm that one generally considers when there is a self defense type of defense, defense of others, or even in a mitigation situation. I will say one thing. When dealing with smaller towns where you have very prominent people who have been prominent for decades, and they're, uh, you know, I think of the Murdoch family of all things. I mean, a little different. They were all prosecutors. Um, They were involved in the law for a century. But when I look at very prominent people in communities and then things that may or may not have been happening as far as alleged domestic violence, alleged other potential criminality, 
that sometimes law enforcement is not that willing to investigate and the victim has a hard time. I'm not saying that's the case here, has a hard time getting anyone to pay attention. I absolutely agree. I I think um, laws and towns and the way that domestic violence is handled is very differently situated as it relates to locale, um, the prominence of people in the community. And I believe, you know, he's very prominent in the community. They're a wealthy family. The money is coming from his family. So there is influence inside of small towns that you're right, could could influence the way that detectives investigate or even the way that some sort of justice is carried out as it relates to domestic violence. And also in family court and the division of property and also for the custody of the children. Look, these are just the, this is what she said in court records about Robert. We do not know at all that he has done anything wrong at all. Right now, as far as police have portrayed this, he is an innocent victim in all of this. I'm just bringing that up because it was part of the divorce filings and the contentious, you know, each one accusing each other of things because she also accuses him of hiding money from her and cutting her off from his accounts. So, you know, a lot of allegations thrown back and forth. So, Here's the other thing that she said as an example, which I think is just like, again, we're getting into everybody's dirty laundry and only rich people have these problems, right? You know, poor people, working people, they don't have time for this. It's like, I, I have to work. There's no time. She accused her husband of not allowing her to take part in, a, in their lavish lifestyle. Yeah. Cutting her off. She claimed that on one occasion, Robert used get this, the private jet for a getaway for himself and the children. And he did not have Lindsay go with them. Yeah. Bastard. I I do plenty (laughs) of litigation and uh, I see all kinds of filings. Um, This is the kind of thing that doesn't garner a ton of sympathy from the general public or from a judge. Uh, You weren't allowed on the private jet on my vacation with the kids. It's it's hard to relate to these problems, um, but these are definitely the problems that she is alleging they were having. At, but again, it, it doesn't it doesn't make you feel sorry for her in in some of these ways. I mean, there's other ways, in fact, to frame that uh, he's taking my kids on vacation. I'm not invited. I'm being shielded from my children. I don't know if the private jet is so incredibly relevant to that. Well, then she adds, this is why it's all so murky for me. Then she adds that he refused, this is what she says, that he refused to return the children and that Lindsay had to call the police. So if there is a record of that, um, that will be interesting, though. Here's the thing. Is there a custody agreement in place? Because if there isn't, and he took the kids and is on vacation. I does she legally have any grounds to demand the children come back from a vacation if there's no set custody of who gets what when? I think that is all very murky territory. He they are his children as much as they are her children. And do you need one parent's consent to take them somewhere? Um, without some agreement in place, and there probably wasn't yet an agreement in place as this uh, family dispute was unfolding and the divorce dispute was unfolding. And uh, this is just highlighting basically the uh, really terrible issues that are about are, are brewing inside of what is about to be a very large family dispute. Oh, man. I mean, if they thought they were going to keep this one quiet now with this arrest in the Bahamas, forget it. Everybody's pouring through their private lives. So now let's get back to some of the details that police are alleging here in the Bahamas so we can piece this all back together again. So according to police, Lindsay, Terrence Bethel, the bartender, and Farron Newbold Jr., the alleged hitman in all of this, um, had, this is according to police, they have a different way of saying things, had agreed to, with a common purpose, to commit an offense, namely the murder of Richard Scheiber. 
So that's the charge. So okay. I guess that's our equivalent to conspiracy to commit murder. So it is our equivalent. The issue in the Bahamas, I would say, is that she will have a tougher time, as will the other two defendants, defending the charges because what is required for conspiracy in the Bahamas is different than what is required in most states here. Uh, so it is a tougher law, which means she will have the it makes the prosecutor's case easier and her defense harder. Oh, that's interesting. Interesting. So Lindsay, Terrence and Farron were all arrested on Abaco Island. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Before they were flown to Nassau to appear in front of a judge, the trio had their first court date on July 28th of this year. Just last month. We're already in August. Crazy. Um, they were not required to enter a plea. Lindsay and her alleged co-conspirators are being held without bail. Find that very interesting. After they were denied bail by the acting chief magistrate, their legal team reportedly filed an urgent bail application seeking their release. The application was denied and prosecutors are reportedly objecting to their release. According to Lindsay's attorney, she will have to apply for bail with the Supreme Court of the Commonwealth of the Bahamas. My guess is because she's not a, uh, a resident or, um, you know, a citizen of the Bahamas. So she's a flight risk. So, Anna, minutes into our podcast, she was released. Oh, no um, way. So she was released on $100,000 bail with an ankle monitor. And the other two defendants were also released on like, what I believe is $20,000 bail. So she is ordered to stay in the Bahamas and then have another court appearance in October. Uh, so that will be the next time. But she's ordered to stay with an ankle monitor. But they are out of jail in the Bahamas as of moments ago. Interesting. So, I mean, I guess technically she and her husband own the house in the Bahamas. Is she allowed to stay? Is that considered her home? Or because of this divorce and because of the alleged charges? I mean, does that mean you don't get to go home if you are accused of trying to kill the husband in your home? <laughs> That's an interesting term of release. And I think that if they really feared that she was imminently going to harm him, they would make that a term of the release. I did not read that they did make that a term of the release. And and frankly, I don't know that the Bahamas would care that that court system would care where she stayed so long as she didn't flee. Now, can you really go home? After you've been in jail for conspiracy to kill your spouse, this is probably, you know, it's time to get a hotel room. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, they are all scheduled to return to court on October 5th. According to reports, the trio could face a potential sentence of 30 to 60 years if convicted here. Again, innocent until proven guilty. We're going to be following this case because I have a feeling there are going to be some amazing details coming out of this. I agree with you. And again, um, most conspiracy charges in the U.S. require an agreement for a common purpose and an act in furtherance of it, which is two hurdles. And in the Bahamas, you need one or the other. Um, an agreement for, you, you don't need the act. And, and that's that could get uh, pretty hairy. So they might have done this conspiracy, you know, stateside if they were really thinking it through. Lesson learned. Lesson learned. You're going to pull Ew. this stunt, the laws, <laughs> your chances of maybe getting away with it are maybe on your side in the United States. But don't do this in the Bahamas. Not good. Not the place. I'm Tank Sinatra. And I'm Investigator Slater. And together we co-host a podcast called Psychopedia, which is a true crime podcast infused with comedy, making it a crimedy. Each week, Investigator Slater brings us a wild and thoroughly researched true crime case. I'm here to digest it all and react just like you probably are right there on the other side of the microphone. Somehow, I've got to present each case with the detail and respect it deserves, while also cracking up at Tank's perfectly timed humor and thought-provoking questions. Listen to and follow Psychopedia on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Our next case is out of Wexford County, Michigan, where a man has been sentenced to 60 days in jail for killing and dismembering a neighbor's dog. What this man has admitted to doing 
is a vicious crime against an animal, a living thing, a family pet, a black lab named Bear. 44-year-old Thomas Madaw has pleaded guilty to a felony charge of killing and torturing an animal. Thomas shot his neighbor's dog, Bear, after Bear was being a dog and wandered onto his property after shooting the dog. Thomas cut off Bear's legs and his head. Disgusting. Then he puts all the body parts into a box and hides it in his barn. Who does this? What kind of a person does this? It's horrific and heart-wrenching. And we love our dogs in this country. And I love my dogs. And it is it is heart it, it, it is so heart-wrenching to read this kind of story. And you can only think of the trauma that the dog's owners felt knowing this happened. Um, and so many times that this kind of torture and dog and animal cruelty um, leads to crimes against humans. It, it's it, it's the same kind of mental intent. I mean, putting dog body parts into a box is just so uh, tortured and so um, hideous that it's, it is uh, unclear who does this. I was so disturbed by this, and I've been following several cases for a while now and talking to the team here at the podcast, because what I'm noticing is certainly either more reporting or perhaps even an increase in violence against animals where we're seeing how cameras, surveillance cameras, are picking up this level of torture there. We're seeing where dogs are being tossed over fences, in front of cars, out of cars. And all of these crimes uh, are really challenging our legal system because dogs, pets in most states, are seen as kind of as possessions is how they're viewed. And so the laws pertaining to the animal cruelty are very limited. They're limited in what you can charge, the prosecution and the sentencing. And so I wanted to talk about this case because the judge, the judge himself has said very clearly throughout this case and its sentencing, this isn't enough, that he's throwing the max at this guy available to him under Michigan law, and it is not enough. It is the justice, the legal justice in this case, does is not an equivalent to the crime committed here, and and there's a much broader discussion that needs to be had about the laws protecting animals. And what's interesting about this case is that the family who lost Bear is seriously working on and was directed to by the judge himself. To go to the state capitol and start talking to lawmakers and saying, here's a perfect example where our laws are not good enough. Not good enough. I mean, what good is a law if it doesn't do anything or doesn't do what it needs to do? So that's one of the reasons I wanted to discuss this case, because on this podcast, we have a conversation about what is justice? What would justice look like here? And the judge in this case is the first one to say, this isn't anywhere near where justice should be. So I I'm appalled. Uh, many of you know, and not only do I love dogs and all animals, but um, after I lost my Jackie O last year, I'm a foster for a purposeful rescue. In fact, I have a foster that I'm getting either today or tomorrow. She's just been released from, we managed to get her out of a shelter. I, that's what I do. This is what I do with my private time. So I care about animals. I know all of you listening care about animals, care about people, care about rights and the safety. So I don't mean to go off on a, on a soap, soapbox here. I'm very upset about this case. I'm very upset about this. This case is incredibly disturbing. And given how we love animals as pets, um, it is, it, it's heartbreaking. The problem, I believe, with the laws is that we also eat animals. We use them for work. We research animals and people hunt. And that is where the laws on animal torture and cruelty tended to develop, was to make farming more 
um, humane was to make uh, dog breeding or animal breeding more humane. And in the context of still selling animals, owning animals, eating animals, to uh, in the confines of that, to make those areas more humane, even the research on animals. And so that when you read the laws as it goes as to animal torture and maiming, they read to um, to better for the betterment of those purposes. They are not necessarily developed for somebody's sick uh, sick torture of animals because at at the baseline, as they developed, animals were possessions as they as they are in many instances and used at for human purposes. Um, and there is necessary killing inside of how that goes. And so in, these laws are in conflict with what I think as the laws came through, people were conceiving of just the the pleasure of killing and dismembering animals. And that's where the laws need to catch up is under the, just the pure um, torture and, and maiming for the purposes of torturing and maiming, um, as opposed to the line of law that is out there to continually better the conditions of animals that are housed for human purposes. Wow, that's fascinating, Rachel. I hadn't really looked at it that way in the complexities of all the things involving animals. So Bear was a seven-year-old black Labrador retriever. As a breed, you all know, labs are probably the friendliest, most gentle of the dog breeds. Their families always get them because they're great with kids. They honestly, as a breed, are just, they're beautiful, beautiful dogs. So um, Bear belonged to Justin and Samantha Olds, and they also had a little, they have a little girl, a toddler. So just a true family dog. Bear was treasured without question. He's described as loving people and a truly gentle dog. This is not a dog, for example, where there was an issue that he had attacked the neighbor or had attacked livestock or had done anything um, that was aggressive or anything. The, that is not the case here. This is not the case of a dog that's been barking, you know, 24 hours a day. This is not the case of a, of a dog that broke in and, and killed the chickens in the chicken coop. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the fact that a dog got into a neighbor's yard. And the neighbor didn't like it. You know, I had a dog. Oh, my God. I had a dog. Her name was Shiloh. I adopted her on a story, of course, on a crime story. This dog she would, I'm, I've got to tell you the story because it's just like dogs do these things. She was so clever. She would, she was a, a Brittany a hunting dog. She would get on her hind legs, take her front paws and jab them into the back of my knees so I would buckle and fall. Then she'd run out the front door and then she'd go up to the neighbor's house because they had a pool. She was a water dog and she liked to swim. And she would, she figured out how to open their gate and she would just do laps in the neighbor's yard. And I get these calls and they'd be like, um, Shiloh is swimming in our pool. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> They're like, no, it's cool. We love her. We love that she's swimming. And then she would shake herself off. <laughs> Come on. Horrible. That is cute. But That's you cute. but I you could see where that neighbor could get very angry at me and mm -hmm. say, Anna Garcia. You control your dog. I'm like, OK, that was an accident. You know, she's this very clever dog on how to get out. So what I'm trying to say here, this is not the situation with Bear. We, he's not doing laps in anybody's pool, okay? We've got a really, really good dog here. All right, so then let's get back to the date of the crime. February 4th, 2023, this year, Michigan State Police receive a call about a dog that they believe has been killed. They were very suspicious. Justin and Samantha Olds told officers that Bear had wandered off their property, their farm, the previous evening, on February 3rd, and it wasn't like Bear not to come home. When Justin and Samantha went looking for Bear, they found the dog's tracks in the neighboring property belonging to Thomas. According to Justin and Samantha, they followed Bear's prints, his paw prints in the snow. It's February. Until they got to an area where they saw that the dog had been doing circles and that had stopped. Reportedly, they could see blood in this location. And then they could also see that, like, Bear didn't go anywhere. Like, 
bear's paw prints stop. They said, though, they saw tire tracks leading to the area where they last saw bear's paw prints. Can you imagine? My stomach would be turning. Seeing all this, I would know. I would know something very bad had happened. Oh, I, they've they've followed him to the scene of the crime as loving dog dog parents, and they're they're there at the scene of where the dog was either shot or captured and shot later, and that is just it's unimaginable. Oh, I I couldn't. My stomach would be turning. So investigators are the ones who made the. The even more gruesome discovery here. Police say that when Bear went on Thomas's property, Thomas shot him several times with a rifle and killed him. Apparently, Thomas knew this is what's so interesting about this gets back to what you were talking about, Rachel. Very specific laws. Thomas knew that it was a crime in the state of Michigan to kill a dog with a collar and tags who was not attacking livestock. So that's that's a loophole in the law. If Bear had been killing livestock, the neighbor would have had the legal right to shoot the dog and defend his property. That's not what happened here. So apparently Thomas realizes this and his solution to covering up his crime is to chop up the dog, put him in a box and hide him in the barn. Really? This is your solution? <laughs> Uh, it is all he had to do was walk a friendly lab back to his home next door or a, drive a, over to the house, knock on the door and say, look, get your dog off my property. Don't want him on my property. Please. You got to figure this out. Come get your yappy dog. Come get your dog. That's bothering me. I'm allergic to dogs. Whatever it is, there is there is an answer. And it is there was so much effort that had to go in to covering up the crime of murdering the dog, why this man killed the dog, it's depraved. It is. But as horrible as killing Bear is, and that is horrible to begin with, it's what he did afterwards that is far worse than the initial crime. Well, I can't say it's worse because he's taken a life, but this, this, this is barbaric. I don't understand other than if he has done this kind of thing before, if he has a propensity um, to murder animals or some gaining some sort of pleasure to it, there's really not many people could do what he does next. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So police say that, you know, this is Thomas's thought process here was to cover up his crime in this manner, which of course doesn't make any sense. Samantha Olds describes what this ordeal has been like for her. Um, This is an interview she did early on when the dog was first discovered. This is before sentencing. I was incredibly angry because he's like our child. Um, I, because we had found the blood trail and everything, just complete devastation because we were holding out hope that maybe he was just keeping him because he's such a good dog. Um, But to find out that that's the way his life ended. And that was truly devastating to our family. Officers end up issuing a warrant for Thomas's arrest on March 6th after their investigation. They're like, you know, we're taking action. I'm pleased that the police took this seriously because I honestly was afraid that this was the kind of case where police would be like, you know, lady, there's nothing we could do here. I agree with you. I mean, I think the depravity of what happened um, made the police take it seriously. And they might have just gotten lucky and gotten a dog lover, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, anyone who wants to um, defend and protect life would be absolutely appalled by this, by the level to which this reached, the depravity of this act. So Thomas was informed that there was a warrant, and so he agreed to meet the police, turned himself in. He got booked into the Wexford County Jail. He was released on bond two days after serving some, you know, a little bit of jail time being held there. 
So Thomas was initially charged with two counts of felony killing and torturing of an animal, along with a habitual offender third notice count. I don't know what that is. Do you have any idea what that means? A third notice means he's likely done this two other times, that there's been some sort of animal issue two other times. Maybe it's animal neglect. Maybe maybe it's something less disgusting. Mm-hmm. But the, when you read the Michigan laws to get the charges, it actually is based on number as to misdemeanor versus felony, the amount of time um, available for sentencing. And and the charges, again, are, are based on the amount of animals um, to which there's been torture, maiming, so I, I have to believe it had something to do with other complaints lodged against him um, in, in other situations. I don't know if they would be quite similar. Well, then on May 26th, Thomas decides to plead guilty to one felony count of killing and torturing an animal, and then the other charges were dropped. We also avoided a trial here. So reportedly... There really weren't guidelines um, for this punishment. It was the, the judge kept saying that he was very frustrated and very limited by everything here. So Judge Elmore said that it's concerning that he cut off the dog's legs and decapitated him. I'm quoting the judge here. And I can't find anywhere where that makes sense, meaning that act alone is what is very concerning. That violent act is very concerning to the court. And so the judge said that he was restricted in his punishment um, by these guidelines that are set forth by Michigan. So then the sentencing was held on the on July 24th. The courtroom was packed with people from the community. Many of them didn't know Justin or Samantha, had never met Bear, but they were up appalled by this crime that had been committed in their community and 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 the tragic end. I mean, you know, these are two families with neighboring farms. This is just not the way it's supposed to be. And I think the community coming out and saying, we have a problem with this. We have a problem with this. Because I always say, you know, it's the basics of law. I never went to law school, but it's it's about community standards, guidelines, and your community, in essence, your, the jury punishing you, making a decision. <laughs> so community is, is a very big part, I believe, of the legal system. So the fact that they showed up said volumes. So Thomas Madod did say something very short. It's a sentence. We're going to play it because I want, for those of you who are listening and can't see it, he turns his head. He's sitting at the defendant's table. He turns his head to face the rest of the courtroom he says what he needs to say and then turns back. I apologize for the whole situation. It is about the shortest apology I've heard. So if, so if anybody <laughs> blinked here, you missed it. He said, I apologize for the whole situation. The whole situation. Th- this is not enough. Uh, I. It is... It's a depraved situation, and now he's apologized for the whole situation. He should at least be forced to say what he did. Yeah. Um, but he is sentenced. He is spending some time. Um, but that that's such a small, a small gesture given what he did to to these people's lives. Right. I kill you. But I'm sorry about the situation. Oh, excuse me. The whole situation. Huh. I'm a bigger person, right? No, please. But again, they got an apology. So Thomas was sentenced to 60 days in jail. Uh, he gets two days credit for those first two. And he'll be required to serve two years of probation, which I think is a good thing. After sentencing, Samantha and her husband thanked everyone who came out. And they did an interview with MMT Television. 60 days is better than nothing in our eyes. Nothing is ever going to feel like enough just because of our situation with Bear. I guess I agree, Rachel. 60 days is better than nothing. 
60 days is better than nothing. It is bringing to light as as you as you are and um, the, the news around it and the community support is bringing to light the issues of depraved activity and animal torture towards pets. And perhaps it will lead to some changes in the law or more prosecutions of animal torture and killing because there is a fair amount of it and it often goes absolutely unprosecuted. Yeah. Well, I hope the bears in doggy heaven tossing balls, swimming, gathering sticks, rolling around in the mud. Very sad. Very sad. Now we want to highlight a case of a missing woman that was brought to our attention by one of you, our viewers. The family of Gretchen Fleming is pleading with the public to continue the search for their missing daughter, announcing a $100,000 reward for information for her recovery. Gretchen, who is 28 years old, was last seen at the My Way Lounge and Restaurant in Parksburg, West Virginia, in December of 2022. Reportedly, she left her purse behind with everything in it, and Gretchen hasn't been seen since. That is never a good sign. Women do not leave their cell phones and purses behind. They just don't. So this is not good, whatever this is. Uh, Gretchen's family is asking for your help. And we want to thank DJ Koss on Twitter, who says he loves our podcast and listens to it all the time, but he hadn't heard us discuss this case. And he said, could you please cover it? Because it's a very prominent case in his town and he lives there. So... Um, you know, we want to make sure that we support all these cases of missing people. If anybody's got any information, please, please contact the police. It is time for our comment section. These are the cases you all are talking about on social media. And our producer, Will Updike, is here now. Hey, Will, how are you? Good. How's it going, Anna? Good. I'm loving the hat. But like, why aren't you wearing a true crime daily hat? We don't have any. <laughs> I know. What is wrong? with us we have nothing we don't have a t-shirt we did what get a sweatshirt one year i don't think yeah. you were with us yet will no uh, that and... was before my time oh yeah oh so, okay. yeah we have people asking in the comments so uh we'll, mm -hmm. we'll see but yeah eventually i'll be completely swagged out hat uh shirt mug i'll have the we whole have thing. a mug you know but you've all heard me talk about the exploding mug before <laughs> yes yeah that uh yeah we we got to go back to the drawing board on that one um <laughs> But uh, anyways, our case this week uh, is a story of the trash kind of taking itself out. This case comes out of Huron, Ohio, where the suspect of a bank robbery was arrested after reportedly attempting to flee a heist and falling into a recycling bin during his <laughs> escape. Um, so officers responded to the Vacation Land Federal Credit Union after alarms sounded off at the bank. This was around 2 a.m. in the morning. So authorities arrive and they start hearing noises coming from the roof over, over the drive-thru. You've you know, all been through a drive through. There's, you know, that sort of overhang. Um, and officers are noticing this, this strange uh, recycling bin. It's just super out of place. Um, it's it's in the drive through and I'll, I'll show a picture, but there's clearly like a roof vent open above it. So you know that something is going on uh, above this recycling bin. Uh, so officers sort of wait by this recycling bin um, and the just for this alleged burglar to, to come out. Um, and so, it, Eventually, the suspect does lower himself down from the ceiling um, onto the lid of this recycling bin. It wasn't open at the time, but the lid gives way under <laughs> his body weight and the suspect falls into it. Um, there's some body cam footage, which I'll show uh, for our listener, for our viewers. But for the listeners, I mean, you can pretty much imagine it's a full size man trying to stand on top of a, uh, a, a recycling bin and falling through. Um, and so they were at this point, you know, suspect is uh, in a recycling bin, very easy to apprehend. The suspect was reportedly, you know, very compliant after encountering the authorities. Um, and uh, according to police, when the suspect was apprehended, he allegedly had a bag filled with construction tools. Um, unclear if there was any money or anything taken. I haven't seen that in any of the reports yet. Um, but the, the suspect was charged with breaking and entering, possession of criminal tools and safe cracking. He waived his right to a preliminary hearing and he will face a grand jury in Sandusky, Ohio. In the meantime, our suspect here has been released on a $50,000 bond. Really wild story. Um, I don't know, like I, I, th I think you gotta bring a ladder or something and bring said ladder up with you 
reclose the door. I, I just think there's a little bit more ways you could go about this uh, incognito. Um, a lot of people found this whole thing pretty ridiculous. Romeo L said, I would expect all parties involved to laugh about the situation, which I, I don't think it was really a laughing matter for police. <laughs> Canadian trucker said, and here I was expecting it to be a Florida man story. Imagine my surprise when I found out it was an Ohio man. Um, yeah, that we actually haven't had a Florida story here in a while, Rachel, but normally it's it's pretty ripe ground for these types of segments. Oh, but I you know. know. Our... I know. I'm from Florida. Oh, oh, see. oh, gotcha. <laughs> okay. OK, well, sorry. I'm glad we didn't pick. I am glad we didn't pick on the, the, the state of Florida in this one. No, but problem. you know what? Florida and they've been commenting. Florida gets mad and understandably so that it is unfair to the good people of Florida. Oh, I agree. So I agree. No, we, it's just sometimes when my back's against the wall, I can't find a good or funny story. I, I'm, I'm searching. You look Florida in Florida. Local, I'm looking. The, uh, yeah, I'm checking the Orlando Sentinel. Um, <laughs> uh, TVM said this is honestly just my general vibe, uh, which I'm not sure if they're referring to the bank heist or falling into a trash bin. Um, but anyways, I, I hope you're doing all right, TVM. Graceful Annie said, did nobody tell him humans aren't accepted in recycling? Which, yeah, I mean, great. Love it. Uh, Technicality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, technicality. I yeah, I is a, I don't know if he would be compost or really how that works, but uh, that's uh, that's darker subject matter than we normally touch on in this segment. Rima T had my favorite comment. Uh, they said, "Give him ten out of ten for self awareness. He knows where he belongs." Which, Ooh, um, yeah, yeah. The, the way this whole thing wrapped up is um is, is pretty convenient, both for the police, not so much for the suspect. But um, that will do it for this week's comment section. I want to thank everybody for sending those in. You can do that over on our YouTube community page. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, uh, TikTok, Twitter. I think wherever wherever you engage with uh, your social media content, we're probably there. Uh, but that is going to do it for the, this week's comment section. Thank you all so much, and I'll see you next week. Bye, Will. We have a little programming note for all of you true crime fans. I'm hosting a series on Lifetime, which starts on Saturday, August 5th. It's called Beyond the Headlines. There are six episodes, so we can have breakfast every Saturday together. And we're examining things like toxic love triangles. You know what I always say, they, they always end badly. Brainwashing, abductions. Here is a preview of the series. I'm Anna Garcia, and this is Beyond the Headlines, Shattered Families. There was a suicide note confessing to my father's murder, my stepfather's murder, and my own suicide. My goal is to find Jody's killer. There's nothing that's going to stop me because I've been doing it for 20 years. Heartbreaking stories of families torn apart by crime. I'm begging you, place my daughter under arrest to try to save her life from shocking betrayals. I never thought that my own mother would try to take my life. Getting rid of her sister for good seemed to be the perfect solution to all of her life's problems. To the struggle of family members left behind. Trying to find my sister's killer has destroyed me. And the long, hard road to healing. She tried to take my life, but she didn't win. She tried to win, but I won because I'm sitting here talking to you. Beyond the Headlines premieres this Saturday at 11 a.m. Yes, on both coasts. Very early. You know what I say? DVR. Watch it at night with your friends. Have a little cocktail. And we'll we'll talk on the social media. <laughs> so I, I hope you join me. I You know, um, I love all these cases. I love to talk crime and I'm happy when anyone lets me talk about crime anywhere on this planet. So um, I, I hope you'll join us um, on Saturdays, a Lifetime Network. Rachel, what a pleasure. I am so glad that we met at a luncheon of attorneys. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, Anna, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed our discussion. I hope you come back, Rachel. Would love to have you back. And where can people follow you? Because I know you do a lot of commentary on a lot of cases for a lot of outlets. And, and where can we find you on social media? Well, I'm always available at zfclaw.com and my email is there. I am also on Instagram at Rachel and um, uh, LinkedIn and Twitter. Excellent. Excellent. You can find me at Anna G News. I talk about some crime. I talk a lot about dogs. I got a little foster coming my way, so I'm going to be posting her picture soon. She's 
so cute. She's like a six-year-old Chihuahua mix. And, and, and we have the video of her being carried out by the person who works at the shelter and works with our rescue. And you can see how excited she is to be free. It's like, oh. So she got, we got her out of jail. We got her out of jail. So yeah, you can find me at Anna Genies with one N. You can find this podcast, all our podcasts, wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Sign up for our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. So until next week, I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And as we always say, don't do crime.